Greetings and welcome to the Flyby, your one-stop shop for appropriately distanced rapid-fire board game reviews. This episode we have Lydia leaving orbit to help in terraforming Mars. I search for the elusive Planet X. Mason has some acquisition disorder with his many copies of Acquire. We have a classic segment from John on the networks. But first, Luke joins the Council of Four. Wait, I thought it was the Flyby, not the Fourby. What does it mean for a game to be overproduced? For me, aesthetics and tactility are extremely important aspects of a game, which is why a large portion of my hobby time is spent on upgrades and why I'm borderline obsessed with deluxe editions. I've heard the term used as praise and pejorative in nearly equal measure and almost entirely applied to Euro games. You'll rarely hear a thematic wargamer complain about high production values or too many minis. For me, the distinction lands in the function of the components. Vindication is a great example of a game I'd consider quote-unquote overproduced, not because the component quality is, I guess, too good, but because the game's most opulent components are the least used. A similar criticism has been leveled against the monster minis in Rising Sun, but if a component is core to gameplay, then why not make it amazing? For years, the gaming community complained about how bland and brown Euro games were, and just when companies like Simon started applying the Ameritrash aesthetic to Euros like Dogs of War and Council of Four, the pendulum swung toward calling them quote-unquote overproduced. But does that really apply to a game whose amazing production value is applied to its core components? As a fan of the crew of Italian designers who produced some of my favorite games like Coimbra, The Voyages of Marco Polo, and Grand Austria Hotel, other gamers would frequently point me toward Council of Four, a route-building action selection Euro originally published in 2015 by Cranio Creations and designed by Simone Luciani and Daniela Tashini, the design team responsible for the modern classic Sulkin. At that point in my experience with the hobby, I was just starting to break out of accepting ugly games and building my desire to play with something nicer. As attractive as the design pedigree was to me, I just could not push past the blandness of the original version's graphic design. I probably would have picked it up eventually, but I was spurred to grab it when Simon gave it a whole new coat of paint, and I'm so glad I did. In Council of Four, you're installing merchants and cities across a fictional map in order to build a more and more efficient trade route. Cities are split among three regions, and in order to install a merchant, you must first influence the four counselors responsible for the administration of that region. Doing so simply means playing cards from your hand that match the color of the counselors. Every matching card reduces the cost to place a merchant. But in order to install a merchant, you must first acquire a business permit for the appropriate city. And if you don't have the right cards to match a council, you can elect a new counselor, sliding them into the left side of the line of four and booting out a counselor on the opposite end. And if you really need to get into a city without a permit, you can bribe the Queen's Council to make sure it happens. The catch is that you can only do two of these actions on your turn. So you have to try and plan across several turns when your opponents might take the permit you need or change the makeup of a council before you get there. The real beauty of Council of Four comes in the massive engine you can build as your route grows. Every city where you place a merchant grants a benefit, randomly determined before the game. And every time you place a new merchant, you get the benefit of every single city where you have a merchant that's directly connected to the new one. By the end of the game, you'll be swimming in piles of money, cards, points, and servants every time a new merchant hits the board. Over the course of the game, you'll build a massive route and earn bonuses for being the first to place merchants in all cities of a region or of a specific color. So you're not just building an engine, but you're racing your opponents to land the biggest bonuses. The tension of trying to beat your opponents to the punch or being forced to pivot when you realize it's too late is one of the most engaging in modern Euros, especially for a game in the lower end of medium weight. Mechanically, Council 4 is solid, 
and presents an extremely satisfying arc where you start with nearly nothing and by the end of the game are activating bonuses on a connected line of 9 or 10 cities for gargantuan rewards. It's genuinely become a favorite of mine, which I sort of knew it would based on the names on the box. And it's a game I might have passed over if Simon hadn't decided to overproduce it. With the two versions of Council of Four, you can see firsthand what a bland Euro game can be if the industry shuns Brown, and it breathes new life into a game that wasn't really on my radar prior to Simon's release. Sure, you can get the original version used for cheaper than the 50 bucks the new one goes for online, but the question really becomes, do you want a bowl of plain white rice or a plate of delicious biryani? Sure, one of them admirably performs its basic function, but the other one gets you there with flavor and spice. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! Hi everyone, and welcome to Lydia's Educational Game Corner, where I take a moment to showcase my game of the day and give you tips on how you can use it in your classroom or educational space. Today's game of the day is one of my newly appointed favorites, Terraforming Mars by Stronghold Games, designed by Jacob Frizellis and artist Isaac Frizellis. Terraforming Mars was previously covered in episode 67. If you want to get more details on how the game is played, check that episode out. Terraforming Mars is an environmental strategic territory building game that takes place in the 2400s where mankind begins to terraform the planet Mars. During the game, you assume the role of corporations sponsored by the government on Earth and work with the rest of the table to terraform while also competing for victory points that are awarded throughout the game. Each player keeps track of their production and the six resources of mega credits, steel, titanium, plants, energy, and heat you could all earn while competing for the best places to place your city, ocean, and greenery tiles. Each round of play is called a generation, and when temperature, oxygen, and ocean have all reached their goal, the terraforming is complete and the game ends after that generation. Last thing to do is to count your points, or in my case, get someone else to count them for you because who has time for math to see if you're winning the corporation? So far, I always lose, so win in my honor, okay? Terraforming Mars is a great game to bring into your educational space for a lesson of the environment, along with participants practicing their strategic planning and thinking skills. But before I get into some tips for the classroom, there are a couple of important things to keep in mind before incorporating it into your educational space. First, timing. How long do you have to play and teach this game? Will your players learn on their own or will you teach before you play? Terraforming Mars is long. Board Game Geek estimates about 120 minutes, but if it is your first time playing, it will be longer. Have your players and yourself prep beforehand by watching how-to tutorials to get a grasp of the game, and definitely make sure you have the time and patience to teach. Don't rush it if you can. Next, the theme. It has an environmental theme and it is a territorial building style game. Make sure to ask your players how they feel about trying to compete with others on claiming spaces in a game. If you are playing with players that don't want to handle the conflict of losing a space they have been wanting the entire game, then this may not be the game to bring to the table. But if you have players that are all about that life, then yes, Terraforming Mars is the way to go. Take over those areas, my friend. Just remember, to always get feedback from the players if this is a game that they would all be interested in playing together. Never force a game. You will also have to consider the age and grade. So not only is Terraforming Mars long, it is also a little on the heavier side of games. This may be better suited for ages 13 and up and high schoolers because of its heaviness. But I am a strong believer of giving opportunities for all gamers. I would definitely bring this to my middle school crowd for some friendly competition 
and a new approach on strategic thinking. Lastly, modifications. Not everyone learns on the same level and rate as others. Keep that in mind when introducing this game to players. I would suggest going with a preset corporation instead of a card drafting to select their own. Too much information at once can be overwhelming to a player who hasn't played this type of game. Don't be afraid to modify to fit the group you're playing with. If you have a player that is worried about playing on their own, make it team so they can have support. If someone is not wanting to play but still wants to be a part of the table, have them in charge of giving cards out, moving the temperature and oxygen levels around, handling resources, etc. Now, let's talk about how it can be used in your classroom or educational space. Not only can board games be fun, they can also provide a great learning experience for all that play. I'm going to give you a few tips on how you can. I always recommend before teaching any games to develop resources to check for understanding. Resources such as a vocabulary list of what words they'll come across, mechanisms of the game, what they think of terraforming Mars, etc. By having a session zero, it will provide the participants easier comprehension of what they will expect when playing the game. After completing the session and seeing how they did, can determine if you want to move forward with the terraforming Mars assessments or take a step back. There's nothing wrong with taking a step back. If I taught this game in my public speaking and drama classroom, I would have my kiddos write an informative paper about Mars or have them do a persuasive debate on why Mars is the best planet out there of the solar system. In my drama realm, my kiddos could write and deliver a monologue in the perspective of Mars in whichever way the kiddo wants to. In addition, Terraforming Mars could also be a great place for the science classroom during a unit of planets or speaking about the environment. The card drafting and hand management skill is great for kinesthetic learners. As previously stated, there are six resources you'll have to keep track in the game. That can be pretty overwhelming to a new player. An idea to understand the resources better? You could have your participants develop a Google Slideshow presentation of each resource and how it is used in the real world and how it is used in the game to check for understanding. Well, everyone, there are so many things you could do, but so little time. And hopefully these tips will begin your journey of bringing education to your gaming experience. Thank you for tuning in to Lydia's Educational Game Corner. Till next time, happy learning and happy gaming. I love deduction games. And no, I'm not talking about social deduction where people are pretending to be this or that. I mean actual deduction with logic. If you know anything about me by now, you should know that I'm a just-the-facts-ma'am kind of guy, and Clue was one of my favorite games growing up. Okay, okay, roll and move, caveat, emptor, and all that, whatever. You can house rule the dice rolls, and in our house we do, and at the end of the day you still have a fairly decent, fast, fun deduction game. So how do you modernize a classic? By adding more? Well, a lot of games in the 90s and early 2000s did. Games like Mystery of the Abbey, adding multiple cards for suspects, and trading cards, and frankly just ruin the whole experience, because the moment one person makes a bad assumption and it gets into your perfectly precisely aligned temple of facts, the whole thing comes down like a house of cards, which would be hilarious if these weren't multi-hour games wasted, as now no one knows anything because Steve thought he was being clever. But, what if you remove the human failure from the equation? Well, then you could do just about anything and not worry about other people messing you up. And that, my friends, is the beauty and the joy of The Search for Planet X. In The Search for Planet X by Matthew O'Malley and Ben Rossett, and published by Foxtrot and Renegade Games, you and your fellow astronomers are in a friendly competition to map the night sky and discover the elusive location of the mysterious theorized Planet X. 
Each game has certain rules that never change. Comets are always in certain sectors. Asteroids are always next to at least one other asteroid. Gas clouds are always next to at least one empty space, and so on. The app that controls the game takes these base rules, then adds additional rules and uses them to populate the 12 sectors of the sky and then in secret gives each player some starting information. You then take turns moving around the board, scanning the visible sky, targeting sectors, requesting information on the new rules for this specific game, and trying to deduce where Planet X is. The first person to figure that out and correctly enter it into the app wins. The Search for Planet X is a time-based game, in that each action takes time and the person furthest back on the time track goes next. Researching a rule specific to this game takes just one time, so move your pawn forward just one space on the time track. Surveying for an object takes 3 to 4 time, depending upon how many sectors you scan. In a regular game, the 360 degree sky is broken up into 12 sectors. At any point, half the sky is visible to you, so you can scan up to those 6 sectors for any of the possible objects. Again, comets, gas clouds, dwarf planets, asteroids, and empty sectors. And the application will tell you how many there are in those sectors you scanned. It's a little counterintuitive though, because the more sectors you scan, 4 to 6, the less time it takes. Three. Weird. But you'll want to be super strategic with your planning here for how you scan and what you use as your borders to really nail down what you're looking for. The third potential action here is to target a sector, which takes four time. Targeting a sector will tell you exactly what's in that sector, unless it has planet X, in which case it will say that it's an empty sector. Once the last person moves forward, the planet board rotates, changing what parts of the sky are visible and can be scanned, so plan ahead. This also potentially kicks off a theory phase, where people optionally submit theories for sectors based on what they know. Correct theories gain you points at the end of the game and can really swing the game as different spatial objects are worth different points. But incorrect theories lose you time, so don't submit incorrect theories. The last action is to locate Planet X. To do so, you must know which empty sector contains Planet X and also what is in the two adjacent sectors. This will cost you 5 time. If you are correct, you trigger the end of the game. Your opponents get certain actions allowing them to gain points based on how far back they are. If you are incorrect, we'll keep playing the game and try again. Locating Planet X doesn't guarantee you'll win the game though. That's based off of how many theories you have correct and how many points you've gotten whether or not you found Planet X. So what's there to like about the search for Planet X? Well for starters it's pure deduction which is nice. The application implementation is nice and you can load your specific game code across multiple devices. The starting information is configurable to give more or fewer clues to different players for varying ages and skill level. The solo mode is interesting and challenging. I think my favorite part is that no one can really mess you up by passing along their bad assumptions. When the theories hit the proof phase, they are flipped over and peer-reviewed via the app, so they are checked for validity, and incorrect theories are removed, so no bad data is left on the board. Even if you get Planet X incorrect, so long as no one else has guessed it correctly, you can just try again. And last I have to say, a big plus for me is how much my logic puzzle-loving daughter loves this game. She adores it and really, really pushes me hard just to stay inches ahead of her. So what didn't we enjoy? Well, the theory phase threw us for a loop a bit at first. We played it wrong the first few plays, so be careful with that. I'm also not totally sure why it only plays four people. I kind of feel like it could play more, though I'm sure there's a reason I'm just missing having to do with the board or the app. I'm also a little concerned about the app and cheating, since you can't verify that people are actually entering in the information that they say that they are. But I guess if you're playing with those kind of people, then that's kind of on you. And that's the search for Planet X. If you enjoy logic or deduction and you're a 1 to 4 player board gamer, I recommend you give it a try, post-COVID when things are back to normal, or even pre-COVID if you can find an appropriately socially distanced way to do so. Just, you know, keep it safe. 
Until next time, if you have any further questions about the search for Planet X, you're welcome to reach out to me on Twitter at Mike Risley. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Acquire. There aren't many titles in hobby gaming with the long-term cachet and staying power of Acquire. When Board Game Geek started 20 years ago, the first five titles Scott put into the database were Dimocker, Dragon Master, Kinesia's Samurai, some abstract you've never heard of and don't care about, and Sid Saxon's Acquire. That doesn't really mean anything, but it sounds impressive, doesn't it? Now, first published by 3M as part of their bookshelf series in 1964, Acquire is the oldest, highest-ranked game besides Go and Crokinole. Board Game Geek ratings are, of course, dumb and meaningless, but it's at least an indication of the continued regard for what a marvelous economic game this is. I think there's a strong case to be made that it's Sid Saxon's masterwork, and I say this as a huge fan of Sid's game. Check out my segments on Extra, back in episode 65, and Lines of Action, back in episode 69. Acquire is a highly emergent and highly interactive abstract economic game that uses a plastic game board and tiles to model market shares of hotel corporations. I own a couple of editions, and especially in the 1960s 3M and 1970s Havilon Hill versions, the theme is fairly non-existent. Like a great novel, Acquire comes to life in your mind, in your sense of being there inside the game's narrative, not through card art or through minis. Now, the general consensus is that the 1999 Avalon Hill Big Box is the best version, and while it does have little plastic buildings that you can place on the grid, it's still totally abstract. Honestly, you can make yourself a version of this game using typing paper and a pencil, and it would still be one of the best economic games anybody ever put out. So, what is Acquire exactly? Well, you've got a hand of tiles with grid numbers printed on them that correspond to the grid on the board. 11G, 3F, 9B, etc. On your turn, you choose one to place on the grid. If you connect it to one or more tiles already on the grid, you can start a hotel chain. You get a free share of that chain, and then you put the colored tile of that chain on top of your tile. Those two or three tiles are now a hotel chain. You then also choose to buy up to three stocks from any of the chains that have already been started. The smaller the chain, the cheaper the stock. There are some chains that start out more valuable than others. Sometimes you want to go pricey, but not necessarily always. And that's the spending money part, and that's basically it in terms of rules. You'll do this for a while until two hotel chains connect up. The smaller one gets acquired by the larger one, and they merge, and if you have stock in the company that's being absorbed, you have to decide what to do with it. Do you trade 2 to 1 for stock in the new larger company? Do you sell your stock for the current stock value, or do you hold on to it, hoping you can rebuild the acquired chain later in the game? And that's it. The original rules are written on the inside of the box lid. It's plastic tiles, a few stock share cards, paper money, and a single page of rules, and it's been the gold standard of economic games for almost 60 years. Now, there are a bunch of different versions of Acquire, and some are better than others. If you want to go grab yourself a physical copy, jump on eBay or BGG and buy one. Classic 60s 3M editions are $30 to $40, and that's my preferred version. Now, if you want to spend big boy money, you can chill out $200 for the Grail, massive eye roll, 1999 big box edition. Don't spend $200 on a board game, folks. It's not a good idea. So, a thing that isn't great about playing Acquire during a global pandemic is that you really want to play it at 4. It's good at 3. People seem to enjoy it at 5 and 6, though I've never played that count. And there is a two-player variant on BGG that works okay, but it's just not the same. I went looking for an app recently, and uh, there isn't one. There is a nice online implementation that I'll link to in the show notes, but it is for serious players only. You are not going to learn to play using it. There's no AI. Now, if you had some friends you wanted to get together to play Acquire, it would probably work just fine. If you want to play against an AI... By far the best, and this is totally ridiculous, the best online version is the IBM PC version from 1991. 
There's also an earlier DOS version from 1988 that I think looks better but isn't as functional and is harder to use. Now, you don't need to fire up your old 386 to play DOS games anymore. Of course, there are multiple sites like myabandonware.com where you can play them in your browser. If you're so inclined, you can always install DOSBox on your PC or phone, but I can never get it configured right. Using the web version is just easier. Now, maybe it's just because I'm not very good at Acquire, but in about a dozen games, I found the AI computer players in the PC version to be fairly challenging. You can also pass and play as up to six human players, and I love the idea of, in 1991, people trading hot seats and taking their turns. Someone who is much smarter than me should figure out how to implement a multi-user browser version of the DOS game so that we can play it with friends remotely against AIs as well. I highly doubt we will ever see Acquire on something like Board Game Arena because, of course, Hasbro still owns it. Acquire is still lean and light and crunchy and vital. It feels good to play. It has massive input randomness, zero output randomness. It's emergent and social and calculating and replayable. It's probably my favorite game from probably my favorite designer, but that doesn't necessarily make it my favorite game, if that makes any sense. I want you to play Acquire. I think you should play Acquire. You need to play Acquire. So, who should play Acquire? People who like abstract economic games. People who like multiplayer interactive games. People who like doing a little bit of math while waiting for their turn. People who value a single page of rules. And people who don't need a game to be luridly illustrated to enjoy it. I give Acquire 7 out of 7 generically named hotel chains. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Discount Compost, as well as on Board Game Geek as Breakfast Core. Wash your hands and wear a mask. Like most people my age, I grew up on a steady diet of Sesame Street, Saturday morning cartoons, and reruns. And looking back on the board games of my youth, most of them were based on TV shows I only knew from reruns and cartoons. Most of them were pretty terrible. Even now when I see those distinctive, long, colorful boxes at thrift stores, I have an instant distrust for both the completeness of the contents within and the quality of gameplay. So last year when I was given a copy of the networks as a birthday present, I was a bit intrigued. After all, while there are tons of games about television shows, there aren't that many about the television industry itself. The Networks is designed by Gil Hova and is published by Formal Ferret Games, featuring art by Heiko Gunther and Travis Kinchy. It was successfully kickstarted in 2016, but is currently available at retail. In the networks, players are network executives on a mission to grow their local small public access stations by filling their primetime slots with outrageous shows, stars, and ads over the course of five rounds or seasons if you prefer to use the game's thematically appropriate term. Whoever has the most viewers at the end of the game wins. So how do you go about creating popular victory point generating shows? Well, in the networks, you take turns drafting cards from the currently available selection of shows, stars, and ads. To develop shows, players may purchase a show card from the offer and move it onto their 8, 9, or 10 p.m. slot. Shows can only be developed and put on the air if the player already has the required star or advertisement cards in their green room, which is a kind of waiting room limbo where stars and commercial tapes are stored, I guess? Placing the show in its preferred time slot during its initial season will generate more viewers during the scoring phase. Some shows have impressive debuts, while others are late bloomers and get their highest ratings during their sophomore seasons. But in general, most shows' viewerships will decline during later seasons. 
Cards in the networks are cleverly designed so that when they are horizontally laid out, the right-hand edges show you relevant information such as how many viewers that show will generate during each of its four seasons and how much they cost to keep on air from season to season. Some stars and ads have their own requirements and demand to be placed on certain types of shows or time slots. If you can't meet these requirements when you develop the show, you'll have to rotate the card, giving you a worse return on your investment. After everyone is done taking actions, the season ends and all players tally up their income and expenses and score their victory points. Repeat this over the course of five seasons and then score your lineup one final time without taking any actions. And that's it. That's the whole game. Wait, don't touch that dial. There's a lot more to say about the networks. Running a television network, even a fledgling public access one, is expensive. Television show cards cost money to develop, stars need to get paid, and some shows cost money to stay on the air from season to season. Money is tight in the networks and there are only a few surefire ways to add to your income. This lack of funding will leave you scrambling to put together a PBS-style telethon to raise more funds. I kid, but the game can feel like you're always looking at your little pile of million dollar tokens, wondering just how you'll be able to develop your next prime time hit. The networks creates a really tense decision space where you might know which show in the offer will get you the most viewers, but you just don't have the money or the star or the ad you need to get it on the air. And getting everything lined up most likely means that before you know it, someone else will have taken that card. It's definitely the type of game that will have players sighing and groaning when that card they wanted gets drafted by someone else. And since cards are only replenished during the setup for the next season, you need to really plan efficiently or be able to change your plans at the drop of a hat. While most of the tension in the game comes from drafting cards, the networks includes a fourth type of draftable card that offers players special powers and lets them break the rules a little bit. A few of these cards are labeled as interactive and can be added to games with three or more players providing a take that element. But since this is a game where you and your table mates are inadvertently and sometimes advertently undermining each other through card drafting, you might want to leave them out. After all, spending an action to take a card that will force your table mates to rotate one of their cards to a less profitable side seems a bit unnecessary when you're potentially missing out on gaining cards you really want. The network shines as a game that embraces its subject matter with a joyous hug worthy of a sitcom freeze frame ending. The cards in the game are delightful parodies of television staples, actors, and commercials. And while you're thinking about that card you really need but likely won't be able to get, you can also amuse yourself by thinking about pairing up your 9pm action show person of disinterest with that actor that always dies and everything. Or maybe you'll put the public television legend card that is clearly a tribute to Bob Ross on your Doctor Who ripoff, Doctor What. Every time I play the networks, players enjoy creating wacky combinations and sharing them with each other. I mentioned before that you'll hear a lot of disappointed sighs and groans as people draft cards in the networks, but you're also going to hear a lot of giggling and chuckling. The Networks by Designer Gilhova is a lighter, medium-weight card drafting game that scales well at all recommended player counts. The art by Travis Kinchy and Heiko Gunther is appropriately kitschy and charming. With its tongue-in-cheek take on television programming and solid gameplay, The Networks is a worthy addition to my own primetime lineup of games. I'm John Gonzalez, and if you need me, I'll be over on the couch making a list of classic TV shows that desperately need a reboot. If I'm not there, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as Book of Nerds. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Fi Buy, your bi-weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. 
follow us on Twitter at Five by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Five by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at fivebygames.com. If you like what we do here on the Five by and want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Five by Games. Thanks for listening. The Five By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.